0: Welcome to the Fearless Health Podcast with host Dr. Anne Marie Barter. Dr. Barter is on a mission to help people achieve their health and wellness goals and help men and women live their best lives fearlessly. Dr. Barter is the founder of alternative family medicine and chiropractic
1: in Denver and Longmont, Colorado. Well, thank you so much for being here today. I'm so excited to have you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here all the way from Montana. All the way from Montana. Okay, so tell me how you got into natural medicine.
0: Uh, Well, this is a story I think you'll like. Um, I got quite ill in my mid-20s, really, really ill. Went from being a a national level competitive cyclist to pretty much just grounded out with extreme pain, fatigue. I was in trouble, Um, really in trouble. And I went, I saw every single medical doctor in the medical system in Colorado, and nobody had an explanation for me, not a single thing, nothing that helped. Um, The whole hospital system, I even went to National Jewish, I must have seen 20 or 30 doctors, nothing. Nobody could tell me why I was in so much trouble um, until I saw a chiropractor. I, I saw a chiropractor who um, asked me what I was eating and what I was doing and gave me some instruction on my diet, gave me some herbs and some supplements, and um, and it was enough to kind of get me going again. At the time, I did not know that I had Lyme disease, but what this, this fine uh, chiropractic doctor did for me was enough to get me on my feet to um, get me pointed towards a healing career. So um, if I had not had Lyme, I think I probably would have gone to MD medical school. But I knew with the condition that I was in that there was no way that I was going to be able to pull 70-hour rotations during residency. Um, I just couldn't be awake for three days (laughs) at a stretch. So I thought, wow, man, i got to think of something else here. So I sat on my hands for 10 years until I discovered naturopathic medical school and that's what I eventually wound up doing.
1: Great. So you dropped a couple bombs in that story. Number one was that you had Lyme disease, um, and you were experiencing a lot of symptoms. Would you mind, um, just going in briefly with what some of those symptoms
0: are? Um, or well, were? yeah. Um, so I've got a really striking example. Um, I, w- I was riding my bike three, 400 miles a week, racing with the men um, on the you know road bike and mountain bike at the time that I got sick. And after I got sick, I remember doing the race up Mount Evans, and I actually made it up to the top of the mountain, but I literally was comatose by the time I got to the top. I fell off my bike. I had to be put into the back of a truck (laughs) and I was completely incoherent all the way back down to hotel. I was not dehydrated, Um, I had eaten, I was just desperately sick, Mm -hmm. I was really sick. Um, I remember spending whole days on the sofa, just doing nothing but looking out the window, I was too tired even to read. Um, I couldn't even make sense of written words on the page, I'd just stare at the computer And like an idiot. I'm like, wow, I really can't understand if I'm looking at Greek right now, or if I should be able to understand this. Um, My low back would go out so badly, I couldn't even walk. Um, I'd have to be carried to the bathroom. And this went on for years.
1: Yeah. And I think for people that don't know or don't understand, Mount Evans is a 14er. It's not a ride to sneeze at. And so I think the picture of what Lyme disease looks like is somebody that you know the traditional picture is somebody that couldn't do that type of a road ride up Mount Evans. But I mean, what you're saying is you completed it, were completely fatigued afterwards. But I mean, I think that that's kind of blowing a hole in the current what we think of as a Lyme picture. So, um, so what is Lyme disease?
0: Uh, Well, Lyme disease is a complex um, infection. It's a bacterial infection. It's usually acquired by the bite of a tick, typically, not always, but typically. Um, It's a bacterial infection. It's extremely smart. It's evolved over millions of years with the ticks to an advantageous relationship where the the ticks and and the Borrelia organisms help each other out. So the ticks get hardier when they're infected with Lyme. They they can make antifreeze, which is really devilishly cool, um, so they can feed and be active down to much lower temperatures. And the um, the ticks produce stuff in the saliva that um, that helps to suppress the immune system at the site of the bite. So when the tick is injecting the bacteria into the body during a feeding cycle, um, the body is is at the same time getting signals, hey guys. These are not the droids you are looking for. Look the other way. We're this, just literally not the droids you're looking for. Um, And a lot of people get other infections at the same time that they get Lyme disease. So uh, Lyme is a little bit of a mishmash where most people who get really sick, like I did, don't have just one infection. Sometimes they've got five, six, or seven infections that they acquired from sometimes one bite. So it has an effect on nearly every body system. Some, some strains of Lyme have a real affinity for the joints. Some have more of an affinity for the the heart, unfortunately, for some people. Um, And almost all of them have a tremendous affinity for the brain.
1: Right. So, I mean, so when we're looking at Lyme disease, I can hear a lot of people out there saying, number one, well, I never got bit by a tick because I didn't see a bullseye rash. And I hear that all the time, you know, folks that, um, have come in, they've seen that they've gotten bit by a tick and the advice from their medical doctor is, well, if you didn't see a bullseye rash, it didn't happen. I mean, and I, I'd like for you to dispel that myth, um, really quick because that is super common still going around, even though I feel like that has been, mm, that's pretty outdated information.
0: (laughs) That's to say the least. So that's just a lack of education. So let's clear that up. Um, So deer ticks are really common, but there are many types of hard-bodied ticks. It's not just deer ticks. Um, There's a whole list of them. And if you want to bore yourself to tears, go on Wikipedia and just look at the list (laughs) of hard-bodied ticks. There are about seven different kinds. All of those are fully capable of carrying Lyme disease. So it's not just East Coast ticks like some people think or coastal California ticks Um, There are ticks in every single nook and cranny of the country that are capable of transmitting Lyme. Um, A lot of people don't even know that they've been bitten by a tick because they've been bitten by something called the nymph, which is the, it's not the larval stage, but it's the next, it's like a child. It's not a baby tick, but it's a, it's an, it's a juvenile tick. Mm -hmm. Um, And that nymph is about the size of a poppy seed. So imagine, you know, unless your, your skin is just pale, milky white and you have no hair on your body. You could have 10 poppy seeds feeding on you um, and not even have any idea. And there's no sensation when you get bitten by something that small. So um, ironically, there was some crazy bug uh, uh, bug person, entomologist, actually mashed up a whole bunch of those, those nymphs. This was his part of uh, this was part of a research project. And he published the average number of Lyme spirochetes in every single one of those nymphs was 167,000 live, active, viable spirochetes in that infantile, or not infantile, but child-sized uh, tick. Isn't that I mean, crazy? Yeah, that
1: was that blows my mind. I mean, are these small enough that you wouldn't even be able to see them on your body at all? Is that pretty much what you're saying, that these are that small?
0: That Exactly, they're that small. So imagine a poppy seed. Everybody knows what a poppy seed looks like. Um, And a lot of times these things like to drop out of trees um, or, you know, they drop off of grasses overhanging the trails where you're walking your dog or, you know, you're having a nice stroll in the park and they're so small, you will never see them. And and just imagine if they're in your scalp, forget about it. You can do a great tick check and you'd never see those things there. But that's not even it. You can get a... um, bite from a soft-bodied tick. These are things that often will, they live on um, uh, mice and other rodents. And uh, they're really common in say, rustic cabins and and the woods, of course, obviously. Um, but these soft-bodied ticks, they carry some different strains of Lyme um, that can be transmitted in as little as 15 minutes of attachment. That's really creepy. So. I've actually had a whole bunch of those patients up here in Montana, where they go camping. They go, you know, they go to some rustic cabin, you know, one of the forest service cabins up here. They're beautiful, and they come in because they think they've been bitten by a bunch of bed bugs, but they're really, really, really sick. They say, "Doc, look at these. I think these are bed bug bites, or I, I think it's a spider bite." And I'm like, "No, I'm afraid we got a bigger problem than that." Um, and those ticks will just feed fifteen minutes, fall back off, scurry back off to a mouse in the wall, and the person never even has any idea they were bitten by a tick. Creepy, I know. I knew I was going to make your day with this. Oh,
1: so good. I yeah. didn't, know, I didn't yeah. know how small they got.
0: Yeah, pretty gross. <laughs> yeah, and dog dog ticks can carry it. So, and you know, who doesn't have a pet that you know gets on a bed? Hello. Yeah.
1: I mean, and they ultimately, I mean, from my understanding, you can debunk this if this is wrong, but ticks don't prefer to feed off animals. They're more of carriers ultimately to a human, but is that true or is that untrue? Um, There are
0: a lot of reservoirs. Um, So what you're referring to, we've got reservoirs and we've got vectors. So the main reservoirs for Lyme disease are actually not the deer, it's the white-footed mouse. So it's actually very small rodents that are the primary reservoirs or carriers of the biggest load of of the bugs um, on the planet. Um, the, The ticks are vectors. So the ticks are just carrying it from one place to the next. Um, one life cycle feeds on a mouse. The next one feeds on a deer. The next one feeds on a human, and it's spreading it with every different host that it feeds on. So the human is not the is not the um, uh, it, it's a the human is a dead end host. Let's put it that way. So after a tick infects a human, the human's not going to infect anybody else, but they might be pretty sick.
1: Okay. So did did that get my question? Yeah, that was fine. Um, So at the end of the day, I mean, you think that this is an epidemic of a problem? You think most people are infected with Lyme disease? You think to to what's your what's your thought on um, the infection rate of this?
0: Oh, that's a really loaded question. And I think that the answer to that ultimately is we really have no idea. Um, what I can say is, well, I'll back up. The CDC will admit to 300,000 new cases a year. That's, that's quite a bit. And that's, that's what they'll admit to. Um, but I think that actually the rate is probably about, I'm going to say, I'm going to, I'm just going to put my neck right. I'm just going to put my head right on the chopping block and say, I think it's probably 50 times that because the bar that you have to reach to even be counted by the CDC as an active case of Lyme, that bar is so high that I'm going to say 75 or 80% of the people that I see don't even meet that. They can't even get over that bar. Um, So they're not even counted amongst the people who have it. Um, And that's just the new cases per year. So think about how many millions of people we probably have running around out there with chronic late stage Lyme because they were not properly diagnosed right when they got bitten. Okay. And wow. So, okay. So the,
1: when you say a bar that was met by the CDC, what does that mean when you say a bar?
0: So what for the CDC to count a, uh, the testing gets, gets complex. So we probably should should we'll back, back up and up. take that. Yeah, we'll back up and and talk about the uh, do you want to talk about the testing now? Just or say that just start with the bar and then we'll and then we'll get into the testing next. Okay. So the, the first, uh, the first hurdle that you have to get over to get diagnosed with Lyme disease is a positive ELISA test. Um, mm-hmm. It's an immunofluorescence assay that's looking for antibodies to the bug. It's not looking mm-hmm. for the bug itself. It's looking for antibodies that our bodies make to the bug. So it's an indirect test. It's got a sensitivity of about 50% and I'm giving that a compliment. The sensitivity I think is actually quite a bit lower than 50%. I think it is too. But you have to get over that hurdle before you can even get the quotation marks confirmatory test and that's a Western blot. So the Western blot is much more sensitive. I'm going to say from a good lab, not the Mayo Clinic lab, which is the worst one on the market, the, uh, like I said, I'm going to put my head right out there on the chopping <sighs> block because I want people to have the right information. Um, good. The the good labs, I'm going to give the Western blot a sensitivity of about 85 or 90% if you run the right testing. That's a big difference. So what I do in, in my practice is I don't even bother running the ELISA or that introductory test. I just run the Western blot. But for cases to be accepted by the CDC, if my patients don't have a positive ELISA and a Western blot that meets their criteria for a positive diagnosis, which I can explain those if you want, it's a little bit labyrinthine, but it's doable. Um, if you don't meet, if you can't get over that huge hurdle, you can't, you're not counted as a case. Yeah. So yeah, the, I
1: actually have never heard that breakdown between the two cases. I didn't know that.
0: Yeah, so it's a little bit silly because um, the Western blot is unquestionably the better, more sensitive and specific test. Um, the CDC also, th- what those guidelines that the CDC published were not actually for Helping clinicians know when to diagnose their patients with Lyme, what that hurdle was meant to do was just to uh, just to surveil how many cases of Lyme are in the outside world. It wasn't meant to help clinicians know, okay, based on this testing, does my patient have Lyme or not? It was meant really to make that bar so high that we 're not going to ruin tourism everywhere by having all these Lyme cases um, everywhere so to qualify as positive with a Western blot via a, um, you know, the, what, what the CDC says is IgM antibodies, you have to have two of a highly Lyme-specific um, antibody, two of them, and they usually only test three when in fact you could test seven or eight. You have to have two positives on IgM or five positives on IgG. That's a lot of antibodies and mm-hmm. very, very few people are able to register that as a positive on a Western blot. Although we'll see many cases that are true um, cases of Lyme disease that before a big political uh, meeting, shall we say, beside, between the ILADS docs and the infectious disease docs, So we've got two camps. We've got a highly polarized situation. So what is
1: ILAD stand for? Because I think that's really important to
0: to point out. This is really important. So ILADs is, I'm a card-carrying member of this organization. It's the International Lyme and Associated Diseases Society. Um, The IDSA is the Infectious Disease Society of America. So the IDSA represents the mainstream infectious disease specialists, who are absolutely wonderful at things like HIV, hepatitis C, um, tropical medicine, you know, they're great docs at that. But there's a highly polarized division between the, the camp that I belong to, which is ILADS, and the IDSA on the topic of Lyme disease. And there are a lot of good reasons for that, mostly having to do with who's got the power and the money invested in failed vaccines and lab tests. Um, and that's, there's some fascinating reading that you can do on that if you want to. There's some great, great um, information in Pamela Weintraub's book, um, Cure Unknown, which is unfortunately named, but an excellent book on the history of the politics of wine. So there was a big sit-down. Uh, it was called the Dearborn Convention. If I have the dates right, <laughs> I might so, I'm not sorry. I think that's funny. <laughs> Dearborn? Yes. I don't know. We're talking about oh. deer ticks, Lyme disease. It's just oh, no I named never, It's well no named <laughs> I never got, yep, you're, up, you're absolutely right. <laughs> so anyway, this Dearborn Convention, whew, wow, never thought of it like that. <laughs> <Is this> it's <laughs> a Got to find some humor where you can. You uh, really do yeah, take it. Take it where you can get it. <laughs> um, so it was a sit down be- between the two camps, and before that sit down, I believe it was in the late 80s. It was 85 or 87, if I'm not mistaken, and and somebody smarter than me will have a better memory for that. But I'm approximately in the ballpark with the dates. Um, before that Dearborn convention, if you had a Western blot with even one antibody, band, positive, that was enough to diagnose you with Lyme disease. Hmm. So after that, that's when we suddenly got this, you know, two on IgM and five on IgG. That's, you know, that impossible bar to get over for, for diagnosis.
1: Yeah. Um, You know, I think it's been speculated that it's all about the money at the end of the day, that if you recognize Lyme disease, the way that it should be recognized, it's going to bankrupt insurance companies because so many cases are going to come forward. I think that that's been the um, what I have heard is why that we're not looking at this um, with a more critical eye, which is concerning, honestly, because because it, it sounds to me like it's a pretty serious epidemic, and it, it, you know, it's it's just really scary that we're not, you know, diagnosing this better.
0: That's true. And I think you've got a really good point, um, that it would in fact be a burden on the insurance companies. Although I will say that, um, that antibiotics are cheap. They've been around for a long time, but naturally it's a medication that's cheap and generic and has been around a long time. Nobody's going to make any money on. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, no, their big has not got, they just don't have any solutions for Lyme disease. So therefore there's not a lot of money in it, unfortunately. And, you know, to make it even trickier, a lot of the, the Lyme treating physicians will not accept insurance because the insurance companies scrutinize everything we do. They look at our chart notes, they demand lab tests, and they're telling us what we can and can't do. So the vast majority of Lyme literate docs don't take insurance, so a lot of people can't even get to us.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think for people that don't understand that, um, when an insurance company dictates care, um, it's asinine for the doc that's dealing with that, And, um, and, and you can't do the care that the patient needs or the patient deserves, and you end up having to give the patient haphazard care, and so that's at the end of the day, like the really big problem, um, with, uh, with the insurance companies dictating how they think the docs should do the care because they're, they're not docs. So that's kind of the side note and why people are not, um, not impressed by that. Okay. So, all right. So somebody goes outside, they go camping, they end up getting bit by, um, a tick potentially. And at the So let's say this person has no symptoms, no problems um, after that bite. Um, Do you believe that everyone that gets bit by a tick is going to be positive for Lyme disease? You
0: know, that's a great question and I can speculate. I can tell you what I think after having run, I've probably run 10,000 Lyme tests now. I think that's probably fair. Um, no, not everybody who gets bit by a tick gets sick. Um, we have tick surveys from a number of different areas in the country and let's take upstate New York, for instance, because (laughs) I know about the tick surveys up there. Um, about 80% of the ticks are infected with Lyme disease and about 40 of them are infected with Bartonella, um, and or Babesia. So that's an awfully high likelihood of getting a bad tick bite in the Hudson Valley of New York. Um, if you have a strong immune system, you might, get, you might be able to take 100 bites from a tick and not get sick. And I've seen people like that, really strong constitutions, bushwhacking outside their whole lives. They know they've been bitten by ticks hundreds of times, and they're totally fine until, oh, doc, when I look back, yup. That was that year I lived in that apartment that was full of black mold. Mm -hmm. And I remember getting a tick bite and that time I got really sick. So I've heard that story a lot where people will get hundreds of bites that may or may not have been bad and they're totally fine. But then something, sometimes something will happen. It's oftentimes a trauma or a severe toxin exposure. So I'll see people who had a bite years and years ago and they know it but they literally remained healthy until they fall off the roof and they fall off the roof. They get hurt really bad and they don't get better. And it turns out it that activated the Lyme disease. So it can lay dormant in the system for decades. And sometimes it just takes a huge stressor to bring it out.
1: Hmm. Interesting. So um, you dropped a couple like pieces there. So, Let's go into the mold um, piece. You know, I I believe I'm super passionate about mold. I think that that is a huge contributor to overall health problems, to weakening the immune system. Um, mold is serious, I think. I feel like it's at the root cause of a lot of problems. So um, what has your experience been? For example, um, you named a couple different examples that can activate Lyme disease. Do you feel like mold is the most common would weaken somebody's constitution in order to be set up for Lyme disease? Or are we looking the other way around? Lyme weakens the, you know, which way does it go? It sounds like mold weakens the system to be set up for Lyme disease, how you set it.
0: There are a couple of things I'd like to touch on there. Um, So I'm going to say that about 80% of my Lyme patients also have a mold problem. That's a lot. Mm -hmm. So what I hope is that I've got a mold patient, not a Lyme patient, because a mold patient is a lot easier to treat. Oh yeah, a lot, a lot. When I go, when I get a mold patient, it's like, sweet, this is a slam dunk. It's going to be a year, you know, two at the very most for the absolutely worst cases. A Lyme patient's like, oh, buckle your seatbelt. This is going to take treatment times measured in years. So I'm going to put mold as one of the most common predisposing factors for getting sick with Lyme or triggering it when it had already been present. Traumas will also do it. So having a death in the family, falling off a ladder, having a dental surgery that goes wrong or having a bad dental procedure. um, I think, you know, we can kind of giggle about those things and go, Oh boy, I got a story there. Um, (laughs) So yes, mold I'm going to say is a problem for almost all of my Lyme patients. So I'll usually start by treating people for mold and hope that the Lyme just kind of fades away. And that happens maybe 10% of the time. Um, But it's still got to be dealt with in the bigger picture. But most of the people who wind up at my door, they have to be treated for the Lyme as well as the mold, both, not just one.
1: Okay. And you also touched on dental infections. It was interesting. Um, You're talking about, I just want to be clear you're talking about root canals. You're talking about root canals that are infected. I'm assuming um, cavitations, not cavities, but cavitations, which are infections mm-hmm. in the jawbone, specifically right. after specifically wisdom tooth removal. Um, are you talking about any other? Or mercury amalgams is probably the last one you're discussing with dental health.
0: Mercury amalgams are a little bit of a different topic. That's a that's a heavy metal, mercury, tin. Mm-hmm. You know, mer- mostly mercury, but some other heavy metals, and sometimes elec- electrical charges in the, charges in the mouth. Um, but yeah, root canals can be reservoirs of infection. They're not all bad. You know, some some of them are bad, and some of them are not. So mm-hmm. um, sometimes we have to do some various types of testing to determine which root canals are bad and which are. Totally fine, and there are a few mm-hmm. ways to go about that. And the cavitations can be reservoirs for for infection as well. I mean, think about it: if you've got uh, you've got an infection sitting in a bone in the body, it, it can it can seed into the body at regular intervals or all the time and keep people sick um, until you go in and roto root it out and actually, you know, surgically debride the infection out of there, which is a major surgical procedure. And Mm -hmm. sometimes that's a corner turner for my Lyme patients. And sometimes it's not, but, um, if they have the money and they can do it, I encourage them to do it. So basically what I hear you saying with Lyme is
1: you have to get rid of these other offending factors. You have to get rid of the trauma, whatever the trauma was, was it physical? Was it emotional? What was the trauma? Are they in currently a bad relationship, etc.? You know, you have to potentially um, get rid of something going on, maybe in their living space, whether that's mold, um, mm-hmm. you know, whether they have furniture from a moldy house, a lot of clothes from whatever it is, it's triggering potentially the mold um, in their system. You know, clean that out, but get them out of that environment. Also, mm-hmm. needing to look at dental infections. What's their dental health look like, and really going through that. It, and so really looking at the person as a whole, um, are there other things that you're looking at to get a Lyme patient? Well,
0: Oh, absolutely. Um, adrenal health is probably the very first thing I look at. Um, and I can't tell you how many Lyme patients that I've seen who are, you know, they usually they'll also have mold who almost are Addisonian. And what that means is, where their adrenals um, in a medical sense have almost completely failed. They've almost completely given out. I see a lot of those and they can't get better if their adrenals stay like that. So getting the hormones in order is high priority. Adrenals, thyroid, female, male, um, blood sugar, all of pituitary, all that stuff has got to be dealt with uh, as a foundation or nothing else gets better. And that's true whether they're a mold patient or a Lyme patient or both. Um, I think that all Lyme patients are all chronic Lyme patients. You know, anybody can get a bad tick bite and have an honest case of acute Lyme disease that is easily treated with, you know, a month of doxy or or amoxicillin or something. Um, but I think that all chronic Lyme patients are toxic overload patients. And that's a pretty common theme that I see is that most of these Lyme patients have significant disturbances in pathways like methylation. Everybody, a lot of people have heard about methylation, but there are a lot of other detox pathways as well. And it's a pretty common theme with the Lyme patients to find some very significant metabolic challenges, detox challenges, some just things that are written in their genes that are significant impediments to getting better. And so a lot of times I'll do genetic testing with people and see you know, if you're dealt a hand and you don't even look at your hand when you're playing cards, that's kind of dumb. You know, you don't know what your strong suit is. You don't know what your wild cards are. So I like to do the genetic testing to see what hand we've been dealt so we can play it smarter. So yeah, all like very
1: good points. So I want to just back up because I can hear people out there saying, well, my adrenal health, so I'm going to go out and get some ashwagandha and I'll be fine. I just want to (laughs) verify I want you to just go through and just say that that's not what you're saying. Like, okay, well, I, you know, I'm just not giving ashwagandha for their adrenal health and sending them on their way. And now their hormones are balanced. So, um, because I think that people have really oversimplified that. And I think that that's a really important point to make that it's not quite that simple.
0: I, by the time that most people get to me, they've seen a lot of other docs. So most people are not coming to me thinking just like, oh, doc, I'm tired and I have no idea why most of them. I'm going to say the vast majority have seen at least a couple dozen. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's pretty fair. They've seen at least a couple dozen other docs. Most of the patients who arrive with me know what their adrenals are. They've had them treat it. Um, so, a lot of times what I'm doing is testing them repeatedly to see what actually gets their adrenal hormones into a normal range and how long they need to be on the stuff before they can maintain those normal ranges without treatment. And so, yeah, I, do I give a lot of ashwagandha? Oh, of course I do. Mm-hmm. But do I give a lot of pharmaceutical um, you know, adrenal treatments, hydrocortisone, a, like a bioidentical Mm -hmm. hormone replacement for busted up adrenals, you bet, you know, and I give a lot of adrenal glandulars and, um, and sleep is an important part of that, getting the adrenals functioning properly again. So I tell people, you're not just an adrenal patient. If you've seen another doc and you've had three months of treatment for adrenals, you got something else going on. In, in my opinion, in practice,
1: what I've seen is most people are wired and tired they're just completely their cortisol is shot i mean it's really low especially in your chronic fatigue patients and i i just i think it's just not as simple as i mean most people what i have seen and you can you know say if you've seen something different people go to the store they will have ashwagandha. Someone will have given them ashwagandha or just adrenal supplements, and they're like, "Yeah, I've been on it for a year. I'm just waiting for it to work." And I'm like, awesome. <laughs> "Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> I'm waiting
0: for it to kick in. I have, I have faith that's going to finally work." That it happens a year two. It's year two the, that that happens. <laughs> that's the people who should think about getting tested for Lyme when they've yeah. seen a doc who's been tinkering with their thyroid for two years or tinkering with their adrenals for a year and they're not getting better. I mean seriously, if you're just an adrenal patient or a thyroid patient, you should be straight out in about three months. Yeah, it should change. It should change pretty quick. So that should be a good hallmark for people in general. If they've got some sort of a a thing that they've been diagnosed with, adrenal fatigue, thyroid disease, Mm -hmm. chronic fatigue syndrome, if that's not responding to a normal intervention in a normal time frame, that should be a red flag for people to look for another explanation. Do you see a lot of gut issues with Lyme disease? Oh, of course. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's one of the areas that's often attacked and you know, for sure, you've got a Lyme patient when you put them on a whole bunch of antibiotics, and their diarrhea of 30 years just goes away <laughs> overnight. <laughs> so yeah, you know that for sure, you've got a Lyme patient when they their guts get better on antibiotics, which they often do. Mm. Right? But yeah, SIBO is really common. That's what um, I was going to say. It's not a SIBO case. SIBO is commonly caused by... I'm going to say most often the co-infection Babesia, which is another mm-hmm. bug that can run, you know, it's like another thug that runs in the gang with the Lyme, um, with the Lyme bug. So a lot of people are treated over and over again for SIBO. Mm-hmm. And I had a, a clinical pearl from Stephen Sandberg Lewis, who's a gastroenterology specialist. Um, and he was one of my instructors back in, <laughs> back in, you know, 20 years ago. Um, and I had lunch with him a few years ago. He said, you know, I've got a clinical pearl for you. If you treat a patient for SIBO once and they get better, great. You got a SIBO patient. Mm-hmm. Maybe you retreat one other time. He says, if you have to treat for SIBO more than twice, you don't have a SIBO patient. You have a Lyme patient and you need mm-hmm. to look at the Lyme and the other co-infections that can travel with Lyme that are actually the underlying causes of the SIBO where that SIBO will just keep coming back until you get the primary infection. That's really
1: interesting because I was listening to something and they're like, yeah, I mean, you may have to treat SIBO for six months. And I was like, that's so weird. That hasn't been my experience. Like it just really goes away. Mm -hmm. But so, I mean, traditionally, but I was like, wow, I wonder what else is going on there. And I've always seen SIBO also, I mean, I've seen SIBO also related to mold when you also have a mold case you know, it tends to be, you'll, you'll get the dysregulation of the gut. So, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: or, you know, the cavitations
0: that you're talking about as well, but all really, that's all, that's super interesting. And, so, and it, might be, it might be helpful to say what we're tossing, tossing around this acronym, but yeah, you know, small, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And the people who have it, they know what it is. It's miserable. It's, mm-hmm. it's miserable abdominal distension, cramping, bloating, pain um, after eating barely anything. Sometimes even after just drinking water, these people can blow up like balloons and be totally miserable. So it's, it's a serious thing. It's very, very uh, disturbing for quality of life. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, definitely. Thanks for clarifying that. All right. So we've got, so one of the things that you mentioned was you go after hormones um, early on in in a Lyme case. So are these folks presenting with you, if you have a younger case and let's say um, infertility is the major issue and they're having a really hard time getting pregnant. When you're looking at this, are you looking at, wow, this could be Lyme. They've tried everything else. This could really be a Lyme case.
0: Rarely, uh, rarely are people presenting to me for that's rarely the way that people will come to me. Um, Do I see people who are having trouble with fertility? Sure. Um, Does most of that straighten out when we just get the hormones balanced, Um, you know, get certain toxin issues that are messing with their hormones taken care of? Absolutely. That's kind of a, that's, that's a kind of a slam dunk. That's an easy case. I love it when I get those. Um, occasionally I will get women though, who amongst a whole constellation of other symptoms also say, well, by the way, doc, I haven't had my period in six months or eight months or, or nine months, or, um, I've, or the, the periods are horrible. And I would rather have a hysterectomy at 25 than go through another month. Like what I've been doing. Um, so yes, Lyme can cause infertility. It can cause hormone disturbances. It can cause pelvic pain. Um, it can cause repeated spontaneous abortions, meaning losing, uh, pregnancies Mm -hmm. usually by week 12, um, sometimes even later. So yeah, um, infertility is a common thing that, that is caused by the Lyme, but it's not usually what brings younger women to my, to my office.
1: Mm -hmm. And, you know, let's say, you know, in a case, um, if Lyme is causing the infertility and these women just go get on bioidenticals or hormones or hormone, whatever hormone replacement they're doing, what do you see be the outcome of that? Does that tend to be, yeah. What do you see as an outcome for that?
0: Um, I still see a lot of miscarriages, so they may have easier, they get some progesterone, they may achieve pregnancy, but I'm still seeing an awful lot of early miscarriages and, um, and spontaneous abortions up to about 13 weeks. So it's usually if a woman really has an active case of Lyme, just using the bioidentical hormone supports that would work for a normal woman don't work for a Lyme patient.
1: Mm, Yeah. Okay. And
0: so, all
1: right. So, you know, I think definitely Lyme is terrifying. So how are you, Suggesting that people protect themselves and their family
0: from Lyme disease. Uh, Well, number one, um, don't get it. (laughs) (laughs) If if um, if you can prevent yourself from getting it, that's that's the best because um, this it's it's a it's a very terrible disease. You know, I tell people on the day I have to give somebody a chronic Lyme diagnosis, I tell them this is like giving you a cancer diagnosis. This is a big deal. It's Mm going to take time to deal with this. It's going to be expensive and it's going to take a lot of work. So I send everybody out of my office with a um, consumer reports, insect repellent. Um, uh, there's, There's actually, you can go on to consumer reports and pull it down, but there's a PDF where they tested all the tick repellents. True story, you can go watch how they did it. What they did was they took a bunch of volunteers, these people are certifiable, I'm, I'm positive mm-hmm. they're crazy, <laughs> and they, they dumped a bunch of ticks on them after spraying the various repellents on them, and they saw how many ticks attached to those people in an eight hour period after the um, applying the tick repellents. Oh, good. They got college so, kids for that. I don't know <laughs> what they did, but. <laughs> Probably, maybe inmates? I don't yeah, know. I don't know. <laughs> uh, you need money? All right. <laughs> yeah, here you go. Let's put some ticks. Pour oh. some ticks on you. Um, so the Consumer Report uh, guideline was pretty clear. 20% picaridin works, and there are a few different brand name products that are 20% um, which is derived from pepper. It doesn't hurt anybody. It doesn't cause cancer. DEET definitely works, but it causes cancer. Um, and then the other thing that works is 30% oil of lemon eucalyptus. All the other, uh, I love essential oils. I, I use them every day in my practice, but they don't work. They, you know, so don't do yourself the disservice of thinking if you're putting essential oils on your on your dog or on your kids that you're doing them a service. And don't believe me, go look at the Consumer Reports thing, but they did that study both in 2015 and repeated it in eighteen. And got the same results. So, um, protect yourself. Um, spray definitely. You know the top of the head. The ticks like to drop out of the trees, and I can't tell you how many times I've gotten people who've had the ticks attached to the base of the skull or in the hair. So, definitely spray the head and neck area and any exposed skin, and uh, and well, any exposed skin, but definitely places where you would be brushing through the grass. Also, you can get clothing that's impregnated with something called permethrin, which means mm-hmm. it's soaked in it. It's, it. The fabric is actually soaked in this stuff um, mm-hmm. and then dried out. And you can wash it 60 times and it still maintains the tick repellency. That's what they give to the soldiers that they send to the sandboxes, you know, Iraq and Afghanistan and stuff, to keep the sand um, flies and the ticks and the fleas and the lice and the, all the other nasty things. Um, so if if I'm gonna go uh, deep bushwhacking, I'm doing all those things. I'm wearing my tick repellent clothing, and I've sprayed two types of tick repellent all over myself and knock on for mica so far, so good. I chuckle. Like I smile because I have a bug suit (laughs) that zips up and it covers my face and I look like I'm exploring something. It is, it's quite, and it zips up over the,
1: it's got hands, you know, anyway, I, I look like a freak of nature, but yeah,
0: I will. I definitely wear that. Well, I'll tell you what, anybody who's had Lyme disease ain't going to be laughing. They're going to be <laughs> smile and saying, "Yeah, yeah." I don't want to do that again. Don't want to do that again. It's quite, it's quite the sight. I may post that photo
1: next to this. Um, all right. So if somebody is suspicious that they have been exposed to Lyme, this really resonates for them. What are their next
0: steps? Um, If they have recently gotten bitten and they know they were bitten, save the tick, save the tick, um, and we can have it tested. Um, There's several labs that test a whole bunch of uh, up to 10 or 12 different infections that ticks can carry that can make people quite ill for as little as 45 bucks. So um, if you find the tick, save it have it tested and I can direct you to where the three labs at least that have great testing. That's really affordable. Um, Number two, if you know you got bitten by a tick and and you're in an area where there's a lot of Lyme disease, don't wait to get sick. Go to the doctor, take the tick. Say I got bit. I got bit by a tick. Give me my antibiotics. Um, In an endemic area someplace endemic means it's really, really common. To get Lyme disease, meaning if you got a tick bite, it's almost certain you're going to get Lyme. My patients from Maine, I don't wait for them to say, "Well, doc, I'm going to wait and see if I get sick." It's like, no, you're getting your antibiotics right now. So I would much prefer to give somebody three to four weeks of antibiotics and just be sure we're never going to have another problem, than to kind of like sit on our hands and hope that we don't have a problem, because if we miss, if we miss that that golden month. You know, when you have a stroke, you got a golden hour, you get to the emergency room and you get treatment within 60 minutes, you're probably going to be okay. For Lyme patients, it's a month. If you don't get antibiotic treatment within a month of a bad bite, you're sunk, you're, you're in trouble so um my strong it's really important is, to it's
1: really important to advocate for yourself
0: because i don't think like
1: most people are going to recommend prophylactic antibiotics
0: and certainly not in colorado i have mm-hmm. i can't tell you how many patients in colorado i've seen um who went to the emergency room. this was quite a few patients who've been to the emergency room bullseye rash a good six inches in diameter that's a big bullseye six inches that can't be anything other than Lyme disease. And I've, I've seen the emergency room or the urgent care docs turn them away and say, we don't have it here. It can't be Lyme disease. Um, and those people have marched into my office and said, doc, what do you think of this? And I say, I think that looks like your ticket to antibiotics like right now. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so that's it, gonna be harder in places like, um, like Colorado and I get a little bit revved up about it because I've just seen so many uh, so many people, so many docs with their heads in the sand, um, because it's definitely in Colorado. It's definitely in Montana. It's definitely in New Mexico. And I've seen people get sick in, I think every state in the nation, Mm -hmm. um, and, and can document that. So if you can't find a doc who is sympathetic and will, and prescribe, get in touch with a Lyme literate physician, because anybody who calls up my office and says, doc, I just was bit by this tick and I don't know what to do. I'd bring them in. I, I will often work till eight o'clock at night on the um, summer months, just seeing people who have tick bites and make sure they can get treatment right away. And most Lyme literate physicians will do something like that.
1: You know, it's interesting you bring that up about Colorado. You know, uh, a patient of mine um, got bit. Um, I told her to save the tick, we sent it into a lab, it was positive. For Lyme disease, um, she, I was like, you need antibiotics right away. Let's go get you, you know, let's go have you go to your physician. They pushed back and they were like, no, nah, you don't need it. And I just, I was like, sh- she said, do you think I should just push for them prophylactically? And I'm like, absolutely. I mean, just do it, take it. And, the, you know, the testing came back and the tick was positive. So, uh, but in, you know, we tested her multiple times after that to make sure she did not have Lyme disease. And she was tested multiple times after that, but and never had any symptoms. But I mean, that could have been a complete disaster otherwise. And I have seen that so many times in Colorado and I don't treat Lyme disease. That's not my jam. So to me, I mean, if I'm seeing that, (laughs) that's crazy. So, I mean, it's definitely out there. And I, I mean, across, I think it's, in all states, is what I hear you saying.
0: So it is. It's it's in all states, and I I I think that amongst the Lyme treating docs, we've got I'm sure we've got documentation of it in, of infection in all. I know we do. We've got we've got documentation of origin origin of infection in every state in the nation. So you did a real solid for that patient, and. Mm-hmm. Um, and it might be, it's good to have a list of the, of the docs who do treat Lyme and who mm-hmm. would see somebody like that, because there's actually quite a bit of Lyme in Colorado. I hate to say it, but it's true. Mm-hmm. And so people need to know that just cause they're in Colorado doesn't mean that they're, they're safe.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So,
1: um, in wrapping up the, I always ask folks what they do to keep themselves healthy, but is there anything that I missed, um, that we didn't cover with uh, Lyme?
0: Well, you know, one thing that you did um, that you did mention was uh, what co-infections do. And mm-hmm. I think that is worth touching on because oh, Lyme, sure. Lyme, Lyme disease is sort of a, I think of Lyme disease as, as like a blanket or umbrella term for actually a whole host of illnesses. Lyme is only one of many infections that most of these people wind up getting. Um, most folks that I see who only get Borrelia Berg Fori, you know, Borrelia or, or Lyme, most of them actually don't wind up in my office. They'll get to a chiropractor or an acupuncturist or somebody who gives them some herbs. Boom, they're set. That, that did it for them. But the patients who get some other infections from that same tick bite, say they get Babesia. Boy, they may be a lot sicker. They may have drenching night sweats. They may have brain fog where their IQ has gone from 160 to 80. Overnight, you know, where they're just you know sitting out you know sitting looking out the window, drooling and can't even read anymore, um, sometimes patients will get bartonella um, they'll have stripes, they'll have red stripes in their skin that look like a very weird like they got in a uh, like a fight with a mountain lion or something things things that look like big scratches across the back, they can get horrible bowel problems, they can develop these severe psychiatric symptoms, just boom overnight. Severe suicidal depression, um, OCD, rages, and you know these can be in people who have previously been very well adjusted, happy-go-lucky people can overnight have some very severe neurological symptoms. So those co-infections are separate infections than the Lyme itself. Often make the disease harder to treat, and for every co-infection that a person has, I'm going to say it tax a year onto treatment. And that's kind of a ballpark and a general rule. But if I see somebody who's gotten six or seven infections from a tick, it might take six or seven years to get them all the way better. They get two or three, maybe it takes two or three years to get them all the way better. But the idea being that the more infections that, that a person gets, the more the immune system is suppressed and the longer the treatment times are, and usually the sicker the patient too. Mm-hmm. So it just adds to the complexity because now people will refer to the whole thing as their Lyme disease, but in fact, it may be, uh, it may be, you know, in, it may be upwards of, of half a dozen infections that are all very different.
1: And when you're treating these patients, you're doing a mix of um, uh, of antibiotic therapy and natural therapies. Am I correct?
0: Yes, and actually a little thing I'd love to drop in here is there's some promising breakthroughs in treatment for this. So, you know, the antibiotics have been around a long time. They actually don't work that well. Treatment times are long. It, it's really just not that elegant of a treatment, but it's been all we've had. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, most people I'm using a mix. They're getting a mix of just about everything we have to offer. They're getting IV nutrients and detox help. They're getting herbals. They're getting homeopathics. They're getting nutrients. They're getting antibiotics. They're getting antifungals. Um, I'm going to say 75% of my patients get antibiotics at some time in their treatment, but there's a real breakthrough, it appears, with a medication called disulfiram or antibuse. I don't know if you've heard anything about I haven't I'd love to hear about it. though. Yeah, there was a there was a study published in, uh, I can't remember if it was late 17 or 18. Um, It was published by a research group that said, you know, God, there's got to be something better than these antibiotics, there's got to be something else out there that we can use. And so they tested several hundred medications in what they call a high throughput screening. And they tested several hundred meds in the U.S. drug bank, if you will, um, to see how well they worked on Lyme disease. And there were some significant surprises there. Antibiotics worked about as well as we observed them working in the clinic, meaning you know, you've got to use more than one at a time and you've got to use them for long periods of time before they really do the job. But there were two chemo drugs that came out on the very the very best. Um, they just completely wiped out the Lyme bug just like mm. totally exterminated it. Mm. But those are chemo drugs. You know it's way above my pay grade to put a port in people and run IV chemotherapeutic agents in my office. I'm not doing that. But disulfiram or antabuse was up there almost as good as the chemo drugs in terms of wiping out all the different various forms of the Lyme, which are many. I mean, the bug has mm-hmm. at least 12 or 14 different shapes that it can assume that all require different responses from the immune system or different meds to be able to attack it. So this disulfiram is, I'm going to say, representing the first breakthrough we've seen in, since this epidemic started in the 70s. Um, That's
1: really so great. That's cool. I've got
0: A bunch of my patients on the disulfiram and the ones who've had, you know, my patients who've had like upwards of three years of antibiotics, three, four, five, six, ten years of antibiotics. And every time we take them off the meds, they relapse. Mm. These people are doing great on the disulfiram. So I'm seeing some people recovering um, even beyond where they've gotten with the antibiotics. So um, we're still in the early stages of learning about this, um, but there are thousands of people out there on this medication currently getting good results. Not everybody. It's not for everyone, but I'm excited to just put that out there um, cool. into, into, the, into the public awareness that, that is, it's a medication that we're seeing actually a tremendous amount of success with. And it appears to be a standalone treatment for Lyme and Babesia, which is the most common co-infection not as good for Bartonella, but, um, but a really good treatment for a lot of the patients that I'm seeing. Wow. That's great. Uh, That's amazing.
1: (laughs) I'm speechless on that. Um, any other pearls to add anything else? Great. That you're seeing good results with. I want to just make a common, a comment when, um, IV nutrients are talked about people. Some people have a said that that's similar to a multivitamin. I just want to make the point that that's not the same thing. It's bypassing number one, the GI system. Number two, it's targeted specifically um, in the systemic circulation and it's so much more powerful. So it is not the same thing. You cannot get it by taking a multivitamin because that has just been a lot of common misknowledge out there. So I just want to make that point. Anything else that I didn't ask that are well, like, clinical
0: pearls there that are... I, I think... Folks? The IVs, the, the, the patients of mine who are able to get the IV treatments, they get better a lot faster. Um, because like you said, it's a whole other, it's not even the same ball game. It's not even the same ballpark. It's another league entirely. The, mm-hmm. the IV treatments, um, we can give amounts of things that are uh, upwards of a thousand times what we're able to absorb by mouth. That's a lot. Mm-hmm. So we can give 10 milligrams of zinc orally, but if we give 10 milligrams of zinc intravenously, we get completely different results. So that's another little pearl. The The patients that get better are the ones who get the IV treatments, the mm-hmm. IV vitamin C, the, I, the nutrients, the ozone and ultraviolet blood irradiation and chelations if they need them for toxins and phosphatidylcholine and glutathione for mold. And there are a lot of things we can do with IVs, um, both to help kill the bugs and to strengthen the body so it can fight these things off more effectively. So huge fan of IVs, just can't say, I think I'd be dead. I think I've probably had 500 IVs in the last 20 years, and I'm pretty sure I'd be dead without them. And I know a lot of patients who would be too so
1: you know yeah I think that that is that's really great information I mean glutathione is so powerful so if a patient is feeling better when given glutathione do you suspect mold or do you suspect Lyme uh, or both?
0: I've seen it go both ways yeah I've mm-hmm. seen uh, I've seen a lot of Lyme patients who even after we've dealt with their mold toxicity and they're they're testing zero on all their toxins they still feel a lot better with glutathione so um, I, I give an awful lot of that, both orally and intravenously.
1: Very cool. Very cool. So, um, what are tips, just a handful of tips you do to keep yourself healthy? Um,
0: I eat right. I get enough sleep and I exercise. So mm-hmm. that's, that's the main, the main, th- well, and I get a lot of IVs. I still get a lot of IVs. Those help keep me really good. Awesome. Awesome. All right. And where can people find you if they want to get in touch with you? Uh, So my website is www.nfmedicine.com short for Northwest functional medicine. So nfmedicine.com and I'm up here in Whitefish, Montana. Awesome. All the links will be down below. Thank you so much for being
1: with us today and sharing your knowledge. And this was just a great chat. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you for Mm -hmm. having me. Okay. thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed learning with us today, please give us a five-star review, comment, like, and share our podcast with your friends and family. As always, if you'd like to learn more information about today's guest, please head over to fearlesshealthpodcast.com for links to their site and other educational resources.